by way of disclaimer, uh, before I say what I'm about to say this morning, I would mention that uh, this sermon was completed on Wednesday. I wrote it Tuesday and Wednesday, long before anyone knew what the outcome of the election would be. So this is a post-election sermon, and I'll leave it at that. It may be that whether or not the candidate you supported won or lost may and cause you to view the sermon differently. I don't know. But I'm, I'm assuring you at the front end, I didn't know who was winning when I wrote this. And so I wrote it with the view that whoever won, it would still simply be the truth of the gospel. And we will just embrace it as such. One of my favorite uh, musicals and movies, I guess, is the, the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Love that movie. You know anything about it? It's a, it's set in a small Jewish community in Russia, and there's tension between the Jews and the Russians, and the Tsar is the enemy, and all that kind of stuff. And early in the movie, you have all these uh, young guys gathering around this ancient village rabbi, and they're peppering him with questions. I think there's something of, uh, can we stump the rabbi in all of these, this kind of questioning and and one young guy thinking he's come up with the perfect question says to the rabbi rabbi is there a proper blessing for the czar the rabbi thinks about that for a second the czar is the enemy and he responds this way may god bless and keep the czar far away from us <laughs> clever answer it it brings the question to mind, what are our responsibilities to our leaders? And part of the reason I take up this topic and these passages of Scripture today is because I'm sure that I will hear many people say, no matter who wins the election, that God orchestrated the victory of their preferred candidate. It's another stanza of the same verse, God is on our side as opposed to we are on his side. And I think we have to be very, very careful with that kind of talk. And I think if we're honest, we ought to admit that we do not always know if those statements are true or not. And there's a difference between thinking or taking by faith the notion that God orchestrated the outcome of the election and proclaiming for all the world to hear, including non-Christians, that God did, in fact, ordain the eventual winner. And at the root of this question is a biblical understanding of how God works in human history and in human affairs. And so I'd like to just walk through Scripture today and just make some observations about what we see the Scriptures revealing to us. I'm going to start in Daniel 2. Uh, verse 19, and I'm going to move rapidly through a range of scriptures. Uh, this is when Daniel's responding to a king's request for a vision, for a vision interpretation. Then Daniel praised God, the God of heaven, and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. In Job chapter 12, Job says these things. 
To God belongs wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness to the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. That's a wide range of activity of God, isn't it? In Romans, we're told that we're to be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Isn't that an interesting thing to remember? There's no authority except what God has established. And I think there's a tension that can be stated in several different ways based on your theological platform. The question hangs, I believe, on the difference between what God wants or desires to happen and what he permits to happen because he has granted us the right to choose in some areas. Here's the rational dilemma we live in when we're trying to figure out how God acts in human history. If we believe that God appoints every leader who ascends to power, then we also have to affirm that every tyrant that has ever lived rose to power because God made it happen. And that places Pol Pot, Papa Doc, Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, and Hitler all on God's hands. Some folks are content to say that, observing that God's ways are mysterious. But I'm not quite ready, based on what I see the character of God to be revealed in that scripture, to place evil into the hands of God. It's impossible for me to believe that God would intentionally place those individuals I just mentioned in power, given what they did to the creation that he loves. And I think that any picture of God, any picture that places the kind of evil that those tyrants embody into his hands, distorts the image of God that he has revealed of himself. I don't think God can be holy love and deadly satanic dictator at the same time. I don't think God is schizophrenic. I have to adjust, I believe, what I think about God in order to understand his revelation. I have to adjust my picture of him based on who he says he is. So maybe God doesn't appoint every eventual leader around the world. Maybe he allows people to make choices for good or ill, and maybe we really have some level of free will. But if that's the case, if we really do have free will, what do the scriptures I read previously mean? How is it that God causes kingdoms to rise and fall? How is it that leaders are led away, stripped of their power? How is it that, or in what sense, is all authority established by God? Is there any explanation that allows us to embrace both the idea that humans have some measure of free will in choosing our leaders, and also understanding that God manipulates human events 
at various times and various reasons. And I think there is a middle ground here that we can claim. The scriptures teach that God raises nations and lowers nations and their leaders. But it doesn't say that every time a nation is raised or lowered, that God is directly involved. The scripture says that God has the power to strip rulers and judges and priests of their power. But it doesn't say that every time a leader is removed or every time a leader is chosen, that that is the action of God at work. And here's the hard part. For us to claim then that because a certain action happened, that that means God chose for it to happen, well, that claim may be a statement of faith, but we don't really know for certain if that happened because God chose for it to happen or God permitted it to happen and actually happened because of a choice that we made, either for good or for ill. And because we don't really know why something happened, we should be very careful not to make bold statements about our beliefs as if they were facts. We have to be discerning here. You say, Pastor, why are you taking all this time to make that what seems like a rather minor point? Why does it matter? It matters because there is a pecking order here. There's a priority system here. And the priority system is that you and I are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We represent him and God is making his evangelistic appeal through us. And if we say things that we think we believe but we're not sure of as if they're facts just because we want to believe they happen that way, things that maybe are not even supported by Scripture, there's the potential that we are presenting a false gospel to the world. And the world will see our words as overhyped and reject them. And when they reject our statements about what God has done, they may very well reject the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves right along with it. When we overpromise and underdeliver, we create suspicion and we create mistrust. I'm going to try to give an example of what I mean here, and it's a risky example to give. And I don't want you to read more into it than what I'm saying, but listen to my words carefully. Back in the 80s, Nancy and I lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia for a time. During that time, we attended Pat Robertson's school. We, I, attended the Graduate School of Theology. Uh, at that time, it was called CBN University. Now it's Regent University. And around that time, shortly after that time, uh, a hurricane approached Virginia Beach. And Pat and some of his friends prayed against that hurricane. It changed trajectory and moved and hit another part of the country and not Virginia Beach. And in the aftermath of that, Pat decided he was going to run for the presidency of the United States. And in an interview with reporters, he said on camera, in, on television, in front of the nation, that he believed that if he didn't have the power through prayer to turn around a hurricane, he wouldn't have believed that God wanted him to run for the presidency. So he, he was saying very publicly, he said very publicly, specifically that he and his guys prayed the hurricane away from Virginia Beach. That doesn't sit well with the people who died when the hurricane hit another part of the United States. 
there's a, there's a conflict there because all those people now think, what, is God playing favorites? Does God just answer the prayers of certain people? Why didn't God hear our prayers? Were his prayers better? And when you hang a presidential candidacy on something like that, then the logical thought to people who are looking in from the outside is that, well, if God did this in answer to his prayer and God told him to run for the presidency, why didn't he win? I mean, did, did he get that part of the message wrong? Or, or how, does that, how does that go? And, and that, that whole scenario caused questions. Now, now, I'm hopeful that that hurricane did get turned around by the power of prayer. I would like to believe that to be true. I would also like to believe that the people in the other place that were devastated had their prayers heard as well. I don't exactly know how to put all that together in a factual kind of way. I can make faith statements about it. But when I say this is what happened, which is a faith statement as opposed to a scientific statement, it creates tension and confusion. And I think that somewhere in there is a misrepresentation of the gospel, as if God plays favorites. Rather than what we know from Scripture, the rain falls on the good and the bad, the just and the unjust alike. Right? This is that that's the crux of the problem. Let me try to restate it in a different way. Let me just quote a few paragraphs from Relevant Magazine, which I read this past week. The chief example of the tension between God's permissive will and his providence is Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate, in a rare democratic move, places Jesus before the people. The authority is his, the choice is theirs, and the people choose and cry out, crucify him. Christ the creator was crucified on the tree that he created and was put to death under the authority which he granted to Pilate. At no point was Jesus in limbo, but at no point did God call the event good. Was the crucifixion an evil deed? Yes. Was it ordained by God before the foundation of the world? Yes. Was it committed by evil men who, still, who stood guilty with blood on their hands? Yes. Did God redeem the evil act so that the very blood on their hands had the power to save them? Yes. Fast forward today. Is God sovereign? Yes. Do we have choices in the course of human events? Yes. Are we held responsible for the choices we make? Yes. Does God's sovereignty give us license to make poor decisions? License? No. But the ability to make those choices, yes. So we just don't know yet whether the person we elected will have been a poor choice of ours or the leveraged choice of the Father. We don't know that. To say that we know is overpromising. We may believe that it's true that our candidate got elected or consequently God must have made that happen. But we don't know yet whether that's true. We may believe that it's true that our candidate did not get elected and that's the poor choice of the people of the nation. 
or if it's the leverage choice of the father. We just don't know that. And when we start to state our opinions as facts, when we start to proclaim that this or that happened because God willed it, whether it's true or not, we come very close to damaging the witness of the gospel that we're supposed to be representing. So, so what are we supposed to say? What are we supposed to do? Well, I think, first of all, it's clear that we have to resist the temptation to make pronouncements for God based on our limited human understanding. If anything, we should have learned that lesson from Job, right? These are the things that the Lord speaks to Job back near the end of that particular uh, exchange. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, this is chapter 38. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Or chapter 40, verse 2. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job, finally waking up, responds, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. It may be that we need to emulate that second monkey a little more. The second thing we need to do is adopt the right attitude and perspective concerning whomever has been elected. Of course, I'm writing this on Wednesday, so we had no idea at that point who it might be. So this would have applied either way, either way. And it has been applying in our lives and in our church life. This is 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Right here, he elevates our witness our evangelistic task and purpose above politics. We treat our rulers this way because we represent and we have a mission and a purpose. First Peter 2.17 says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Titus 3, 1, 2, and 3 says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. Romans 13, we heard it previously, reminds us that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I'm not saying that in a democracy, we can't fight for our opinions nor attempt to influence our government to move in the direction that aligns with the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that we have to agree about the directions our government should take. I am saying, for the sake of the mission of God, we have a responsibility. And the first is to pray for our leaders. And not like the blessing for the czar. Okay? We pray for our leaders that they will have heavenly divine wisdom. 
that God will protect them, that he will grant them revelation of his will, that they will do justice and equity, that they will be agents of peace in our land. We should be fervently praying that for all of our leaders continually. The second thing we need to recognize is whether helped or hindered, whether it was desired or permitted by God, the current government has at least been permitted by God. And so we work within the parameters of our democratic system to support it or to change it as we see fit. It may be that the authority that has been established is simply the Constitution. That's conceivable. And that the rest of this is we've got to work to see that our values are reflected in our government. But regardless of that, our proclamations need to be sensitive to the fact that this has been permitted by God. And to say something different than that may misrepresent the gospel. The third thing that's really vitally important, I think, is this call for making peace or pursuing peace with everyone is a primary method of the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom value. We're moving into a season now where we're going to hear the angels proclaim, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's the desire of God that we live in peace. And we should be folks who contribute to the peace of our town, of our state, of our nation, and our world. It's important to remember, I think, that the passages that we read and Paul's correspondence to us in terms of our responsibility for the way we interact with government is all written in a very different time than the time we're in, right? So Pilate and Caesar, they were not like elected government officials. They were, in some respects, closer to the other group I mentioned previously. And so when you think about the fact that Paul's urging us towards peacefulness and compliance and cooperation, it's all the more shocking in a situation where things were very unstable politically and violence was the rule of law in those days. And so if it was true then, it's even more true now. I think if you remember uh, Jesus' words when he's standing before Pilate, it helps bring some things into perspective for us. This is John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The kingdom that has our primary allegiance is the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean we have no allegiance to the other one. It just means we keep our priorities in line and we remember that, first of all, we represent the Most High, the Holy, the God of the universe. And we can't settle for anything less than that. What do we do? We remember, first of all, that our first mission is to represent God. What follows from that? 
we hold our tongues and avoid misrepresenting God by what we say, especially to those outside the kingdom. What's next? We pray earnestly for our leaders, regardless of our feelings for them. Last of all, we give thanks for the blessing of living in a nation where civic power can be designated or assigned in peaceful ways. I mean, it's a great blessing to work for the cause of peace in all of our relationships, but to live in a nation where the possibility of peace is more than just a pipe dream. And we ought to be grateful for that as well. This morning, I'd like us to sing in closing the song, In My Life, Lord Be Glorified. And as we sing that, uh, I would invite you to ask the Father to reveal himself to you. I would invite you to pray the prayer, Lord, is there any way that my speech or my rhetoric is misrepresenting you? And if there is, would you correct me? Lord, what should my focus be in these kinds of crazy days? And Lord, how do I best represent you? Because it is our prayer that he would be glorified in us, right? That's what we want to happen. That's why we're here. And so I would invite you to join me in that song. Would you stand as we sing? In my life, Lord, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bring strong convictions and strong emotions when we begin to think about the direction of our nation, the leaders, the policies. Our hearts are broken, Lord, by the way, as a society, we have begun to call vices as virtues. And we are grieved by the fact that sin in our nation seems to be ignored. And somehow, Lord, we wish you would just come quickly and wipe this away. And yet we believe that you have placed us for such a time as this, in this setting. And so we ask that by your mercy, you would make us agents of your peace, ambassadors of your gospel message, 
that we would see the kingdom of God spread and advance here in our town, that we would see men and women claim Christ as Savior, come to a saving knowledge of you, that we would see the transformation of life that is possible when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, and we would see victory over sin and death in our town and in our state and in our country. And so we say, Lord, use us for your glory. Help us to be careful of our words so that we do not offend, but make us bold about the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. For it is our desire, Lord, to bring all of heaven to earth that we can, that men and women, teens, boys and girls may know the joy that comes only from serving Jesus. Lord, help us to represent well that we might bring glory to you continually. We pray this in the name of Christ. And now may the God of peace guard your hearts and minds and may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will so that all that you say and do will bring him glory now and forever. Amen.